Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hello, folks. It is 6.08 in the Twin Cities. A steamy 85 degrees. Feels a little steamy in here. Jonathan Lowe, maybe, perhaps. Uh, The AC, which is sometimes so brisk here in our lovely studios, perhaps not Working at full throttle? I'm I'm quite fine with that. You're okay I'm with that? I'm quite fine uh, you with know, actually, that. I guess I would prefer this than a, uh, as opposed to the deep freeze because sometimes, especially on weekends, both at WCCO-TV and WCCO-Radio, it, it feels like they've got the AC on overdrive. And I think, I think people know what I'm talking about. And certainly women know that what I'm talking about. I mean, we've got, you know, women sort of wrapped in shawls and, you know, blankets sitting there in the summer because of the air conditioning. All I'm going to say is that you don't want your area of work to be nicknamed the ice box. No. <laughs> that's not that's not good. That's not good for anyone involved. No. No. But we do we do like our our air conditioning. So anyway, great to be with you on a Saturday night. Got lots going on for you. Uh we're going to uh, chat in a few minutes with Larry Jacobs, uh the director of the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the Humphrey School. And uh, talk to him about the G20 summit. Also talk to him. Uh, he's got an editorial coming out that I think is supposed to be in tomorrow's uh, Star Tribune. I've not seen it yet. Uh, and then we're also going to talk. Have you heard about this case involving this this baby uh, at the UK? None, nobody, uh, the Pope, President Trump have weighed in on whether or not this child should be taken off of life support. So we're going to talk to uh, Dr. Jennifer Needle, uh, an assistant professor at the Center for Bioethics, Uh, at the University of Minnesota Medical School about what are the parameters now. Um, This has really been a debate now for a long time. This particular case has gotten extraordinary attention, so we'll talk about that. And then in the 7 o'clock hour, we will talk with uh, Gordon Chang, who I've talked to before, who's a fabulous person about the latest on the threat from North Korea. So let's take a a quick break, and hopefully when we come back, we'll be joined by Professor Larry Jacobs. Hello, everyone. We are trying to connect right now with Professor Larry Jacobs of the Humphrey School about the G20 summit, also about a an op-ed that he has pretty soon coming out uh, about uh, the situation in the Democratic Party. So hopefully we'll be able to connect with him. Jonathan Lowe working hard on that as well. Uh, a warm and pleasant evening here on a Saturday night. I want to let you know that coming up we're going to talk about the ethics battle over a baby in Great Britain that has really captivated the entire world, including the Pope and President Trump. And in our 7 o'clock hour, we're going to visit with Gordon Chang. He is the author of Nuclear Showdown, uh, talk about the latest in North Korea, the threat uh, with North Korea and the problems there. Uh, also chat with um, in our 8 o'clock hour about the new threat of tick-borne diseases. Um, this is obviously something that is is prevalent here in Minnesota with Lyme's disease and the deer tick, but now there's a new threat, a, a new illness that you have to be careful of, and we're going to visit uh, with an expert on that. And then we're also going to talk uh, in the 8 o'clock hour with 
uh, a media ethics expert, about the controversy involving this crazy video in which Donald Trump looks like he's punching out a cartoon figure with CNN on his head. Well, CNN did a long investigative piece, found the person who actually created that video. And a lot of people think that CNN offered what amounts to uh, a threat against that person uh, by the way they published uh, that interactivity and in terms of what they said about that. And then in the uh, 8.30, the second half hour of our 8 o'clock show, yep, we're going to go down memory lane with spam. Yes, spam. And uh, talk about that. So as we uh, try and continue to get uh, Larry Jacobs, I guess neither of those numbers is working. Uh, perhaps we can uh, attempt to put out some phone calls here. Um, I know a lot has been going on here. Uh, a lot of people, um, you know, talking about uh, the president and his Twitter feed. Uh, he says this is modern day presidential, modern day presidential as opposed to just presidential. What are your thoughts, folks? Give us a call, 651-989-9226. That's 651-989-9226, 1-866-989-9226. What are your thoughts about the president's Twitter feed? Modern-day presidential, presidential, he actually said on Twitter, it's not presidential. It's, in all caps, modern-day presidential. And you got to love the president. Uh, for that. So give us a call, 651 989 9226, 1 989 9226. Your thoughts on the president's Twitter account, which I actually have not checked tonight, uh, which is a dangerous thing if you're in the news business. You almost have to check that uh, by the second here. Let me just go grab a drink here. Um, so, anyway, as we continue to try and reach uh, Larry Jacobs, I'd like to hear your thoughts about that. Uh, the president's Twitter account, uh, obviously, the, apparently one of, the, one of his most tweeted tweets of all time was the one from last Sunday morning when he tweeted the incident involving the CNN headpiece with CNN on it. The, the mock-up, the, the meme mock-up, yes. mock-up, whatever you want to call it. And then there was an ensuing controversy, which we're going to talk about in our 8 o'clock hour, about uh, Twitter and um, how – this should be reported. A lot of criticism for CNN on the way they handled this story. CNN, of course, obviously a favorite target of the president. But CNN basically said, you know, the person who posted this Twitter or posted this particular video, not to Twitter, but to Reddit, to Reddit, uh, had posted a number of uh, posts that they described as anti-Semitic. And they said this individual has told us he will no longer post these things. We're not going to name him. But if he posts anything additional that we think is bad, we are going to name him. And that resulted in, uh, you know, a lot of people criticizing CNN with the hashtag CNN blackmail. So a lot of people here, you know, questioning CNN's role in terms of this whole investigation. CNN is taking a lot of hits. I'm not sure that was appropriate. And we are going to visit in the 8 o'clock hour with a top media uh, ethicist and, and top media expert, uh, Jane uh, Kirtley at the Silver Center. Uh, but right now, uh, we want to hear from you. What do you have to say about the president's Twitter feed? Do you feel this is modern-day presidential or not presidential at all. This is uh, a way that the president has used to communicate with people, 
And it's been very effective. It's been very successful. 651-989-9226, 1-866-989-9226. Some people are actually wondering whether or not this actually violates the terms of Twitter. There's, there's actually some rules on Twitter on how you have to uh, behave. You, you cannot threaten people. You cannot uh, bully people. Uh, you have to – you're not supposed to uh, – advocate violence of any sort, and some critics of the president's have argued that that particular tweet, that particular video, did in fact encourage violence. What do you think? Uh, Again, our number is 651-989-9226, We're continuing to try and reach uh, Larry Jacobs here. Here's the, the, the problem with the premise that you want you do want to have something out there that people can interact with with social media, whether it's Facebook or Snapchat or Instagram or Reddit or anything of that nature. Uh, you want them to be on their best behavior. That's assuming a whole heck of a lot, right? When when you're when you're telling people don't threaten other people, right. don't, and, and you can always do something after the fact. To say, if you threaten somebody, this is going to happen to you. But trying to catch someone in what could be an emotional moment, a heat of the moment situation, uh, and trying to say to them, you can't do this. In in all honesty, we're human beings. We're not going to listen to that. And, and, you know, Twitter, it's it's an interesting discussion, Jonathan, and it's a good point. Um, Twitter has come under a lot of fire for not – Self-regulating itself. Uh, certainly, they came, came under an enormous fire uh, for the amount of accounts that, especially in 2015, 2014, 2015, were advocating terrorism. Yes. And it was not till mid-2015 and then even as late as last August, last August, August 2016, they suspended more than 200,000 accounts because they were actually linked to terror and promoting terror. Now, I'm not, I'm not drawing a comparison there to the president no, at all. No. But I, 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 you know, there are sort of a, a set of rules that if you take it by the letter of the law, you'd have to look at some of the president's tweets and kind of wonder, well, you know, especially the ones about Mika Brzezinski. But Twitter has come under fire. And it's something that I think a lot of people need to look at. Uh, we have gotten a text, and I do want to invite you to do text because I've got the text line up here 81807. 81807, give me a text. Uh, we do have a text on this uh, from, let's see, this is the 763 area code. Twitter is a childish way <laughs> to run a country. Uh, I guess we know how this this man or woman feels. He's a morally bankrupt narcissist, narcissist who is nothing more than a successful con man. He's dangerous to the United States. Well, for for every person that feels that way, there is somebody who voted for the president. Yeah, there's someone that fe- feels, feels the exact opposite way. Um, you know, I just finished reading a really, really great book on the presidential election uh, it's called Shattered, and it's about two journalists that had written um, a, a very favorable, pretty favorable book about uh, Secretary Clinton when she was Secretary of State, and I think that came out in 2014. So they had all this access to her and to all of her aides, and so they continued that access. I guess the Clinton campaign, presuming they were going to win, so they wanted this all documented for sure. posterity. Yeah, uh, the book is called Shattered, and. It is a devastating portrait uh, uh, about the degree to which the Clinton campaign not only underestimated uh, Senator Bernie Sanders in the primary, but also the degree to which 
they underestimated Donald Trump. And I, I don't I to to not to interrupt here, but I don't think this is anything that we shouldn't have seen. Um, this well, happened you know, in this uh, happened in 2008. She underestimated Barack Obama, then candidate Barack true, Obama. True, true. But she, I guess she did it. She's done it before. Right. But it was just um, and, and it, you know, the ironies of the book are such that, um, you know, one of one of Bernie Sanders great surprise win in the primaries was he won Michigan. Yep. Well, lo and behold, guess who won Michigan in the general election? Donald, Donald Trump. Trump. And it's it's they didn't understand what they were losing, and they were they were um, they never set foot in the state of Wisconsin. She never went to right. Wisconsin, not once. And and the mistakes there were, were, were just so enormous. And that's why I was hoping that we could get Larry Jacobs because I know he is uh, he's writing an op-ed piece for the Star Tribune that I believe is going to be in tomorrow's newspaper. To talk about um, the different um, – you know, to talk about the divisions within the Democratic Party because I think they remain really, really significant. Uh, but the president's use and the candidate's use of Twitter was remarkable and, and at all times it, it, he was able to use it to distract from the problems he had. And anyway, if you're looking for a book and a, you know, even if politics is not – and you know the outcome, <laughs> you, know, you know how this book is going to end – but what you don't know is is the journey, and and it's it's really really interesting. I, I highly recommend it. Uh, called Shattered, about basically how the Clinton campaign really and, and the candidate herself really failed to take a look at what was really going on, and and and, and courting African American voters and trying to build sort of the coalition that Barack Obama created in two thousand eight. They ignored. A group of voters that was going en masse to Bernie Sanders and some of them were going to Trump and that was actually white middle class voters. And, you know, there were a lot of things going on. They did catch a lot of odd breaks with, you know, or the president, you know, Donald Trump did with, you know, the Comey stuff and the Russia investigation. But it is uh, it, it is a pretty interesting book. But anyway, give us a call. I mean, certainly you must have – even if you're not on Twitter, are you sick of hearing about the president's Twitter account? You know, there are actually apparently a lot of people who signed on to Twitter just so they could read the Twitter the president's Twitter accounts. At first they thought they were like ghost accounts because they hadn't posted anything. But people just want to be on Twitter. They're not interested in posting. They just want to read see, – see what, see what it's all about. Well, going back to your your, your statement about – the rules of Twitter and what they want to try to avoid as far as uh, threatening tweets and um, the like of that. That's another issue with social media is that you, if, if you get a, an account suspended and let's say your email address will no longer be able to put on and put on that account, you can email addresses are free you can put you can yeah. build another email address and then you can build another twitter account and you don't have to put your information on there as far as uh where you live and everything the only thing i think they'd be able to track you is through an ip address and you can go to the public Absolutely. you can go to the public library and just right. just go, use their computers yeah and and that is that is such a good point because you know and, and i've done a lot of stories on terrorism and there was uh you know a guy who was actually from here uh, who for a number of years he was known on Twitter as Mujahid Miski. He's believed to have had hundreds and hundreds of Twitter accounts. He actually is under indictment here, federal indictment, since I think 2008 
for terrorism. He is believed to be in Somalia. He actually, I think, surrendered uh, to the Somalian authorities, so we don't know exactly where he is. But he's an example where um, he literally, they'd shut down his account and he would pop up. And he'd be laughing at them on Twitter. It was unbelievable. That's and that's the thing with so it, it it's a great forum. It opens up f- not limitless, but fairly few limits on where you can reach to and whom right. you can reach to, right. and that can be part of the problem. Is if people know how to take advantage of that, just like anything else, you're going to have a problem at, at times stopping them. And and once you stop them, then you got to. St- Worry about the next one coming through. Right, it's it's an usually a never ending cycle. Right, and and it it, it is you know and, and there, there are so many and you know I am not um I mean I do enjoy Twitter I'm not really a big Facebook person um I do like Twitter uh, a lot of people though now you know a lot of people are on Reddit um, Snapchat is huge especially with younger people I mean there's so many different new ways to communicate on and, social media and the thing with Snapchat and Instagram is that you. They're a little bit different format where you are you have your explanations on the side, but the main driver of those is visual. It's, right. it's photographs, it's videos. Um, so that is and and that is a different way of looking at something rather than just using 140 characters to maybe explain something that you need to explain over 14,000 characters or more. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. No. It's it's it is. Um... It, it is something that um, the president, and obviously, I mean, by all accounts, all of his top advisors, his family, the people he listens to, his daughter Ivanka, <laughs> Ivanka. Who, I, I, one of the things that was fascinating today was like I was trying to get up to speed on the G20 summit, and um, who sat in on when, when he left the room? <laughs> Ivanka Trump. I, I think Ivanka Trump is, you know, obviously a very successful businesswoman. She's obviously very smart. She's very accomplished. I, you know, I think she's a very impressive person. Is she the person, though, to sit at the desk with other world leaders when her father steps out of a room? I don't think so. You know, I maybe you all disagree with me, but I just I was found that a bit jarring. Why not have Rex Tillerson or Vice President Mike Pence or I, 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 have <laughs> no, I have no I, all I can say is and I know people are going to look at me and disagree with me or hate what I say. He is the Donald. The Donald does what he wants. Yes, he does. Anyway, this this book was was so good, though. I mean, it was just so fascinating about um, uh, what the, the the Clinton campaign, what they did and didn't do, and then also what the Trump campaign did and didn't do, spending a, a heck of a lot less money than the uh, Clinton campaign did. Well, listen, um, hopefully we can uh, get our future guests, knock on wood, knock on – Whatever we have here. Live radio. Ain't nothing Live like it. Live radio. Thank you, Jonathan Lowe, my fabulous friend who's always helping me out here. Uh, we're going to talk in our next half hour about uh, an incredible story about a little baby's case. And this baby's story about whether or not life support should be removed has really captivated the world. And uh, we're going to talk to a medical ethicist about this story and then just the larger story because I think this is a, this is an issue – that a lot of people face uh, at a lot of different times. And what should you do? What are the outside influences that you should consider? Should you be outside influences? Uh, should the doctors get the say? Uh, that's a question as well. Well, let's take a quick break. We're going to give you some weather. And when we come back, we'll talk about this case that a lot of people are following. 
Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It is 6.33 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy along with studio coordinator Jonathan Lowe. On a Saturday evening, uh, I don't know. There's been so much news going on, so much. Uh, and I don't know if you have seen this story. It has gotten a lot of attention. Certainly it's gotten the attention of the Pope and the President of the United States. Uh, a terminally ill British baby, baby Charlie, Charlie Gard, only 11 months old. He suffers from a rare genetic disease that, have let, that has left him brain damaged and unable to breathe unaided. Uh, doctors at his hospital uh, and different levels of doctors have uh, indicated that he should be uh, pulled off life support and allowed to die with dignity. Others have weighed in uh, expressing concern about that, the President of the United States and also Pope Francis. Joining us now to talk about this is Dr. Jennifer Needle. She is an assistant professor at the Center for Bioethics and the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Minnesota Medical School. Dr. Needle, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Asme. All right, let me ask you, from where you sit, um, and certainly uh, these kinds of heartbreaking decisions, are, are people face these in hospitals every single day, and I can't imagine having to do it for a child who is just beginning their life. But what are your thoughts about this situation? And, and I can't imagine the additional pressures for this poor family having this story not just go nationally in the U.K., but also globally around the world. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think this situation is a tragedy, um, most namely for the baby and his family. Um, and I have a unique perspective because I do practice bioethics. Um, I'm also a practicing pediatric intensive care provider at the University of Minnesota Masonic Children's Hospital. And so I take care of children similar to Charlie on a regular basis. And there's no question that both sides of this issue have truly legitimate opinions and feelings about what Charlie's parents' rights are, uh, as well as the physicians feeling that they are now in a position where Charlie's rights have to be represented by them because they don't feel that continued treatment is in Charlie's best interest. And it's very challenging to people, for people to hear that the rights of parents to make decisions for their children can be taken away. And it has become a very emotional topic. As you said, both the Pope and President Trump have uh, had opinions, weighed in, offered to actually assist in taking care of Charlie in their respective countries. It's uh, become in some ways a much bigger story than the family or the hospital probably expected. Right. Um, And apparently... um do you think that this kind of thing would happen here, or is there something about the system in the UK that, that allowed this to become such a big story? Or, I mean, what, what, what happens at the University of Minnesota? I'm sure that there are differences in these terrible times where parents want one thing and the, and the, the, the medical doctors, professionals are saying, we've really come to the end here. 
Absolutely. Well, I want to emphasize that these types of cases are incredibly rare, and that's part of the reason that they get so much attention in the media. Um, and I was listening to your previous segment about social media and the impact of social media, and I think that that has played a pretty significant role in getting the message of Charlie's parents out. Um, the United States does vary somewhat from uh, the UK in the sense that courts in the United States, for the most part, have given parents the right to make decisions for their children. It is protected under the 14th Amendment, under the Equal Protection Clause, that Parents are in the best position to make decisions for their children. Even in the U- yeah, even even if they are so in the United States, if if parents are at odds with physicians, um, courts have sided with the parents. Uh, both ways. So um, the it is the assumption that parents have the right to decide. But when the case gets to the point where medical professionals uniformly agree that the care that is being provided to the child has no potential for benefit and may be causing pain and suffering, then when it goes to the courts, there is this uh, concept, this overarching bioethical principle of best interest, and that is up to the courts to decide whether or not the care that child is receiving is futile, which is a very loaded word. Um, There have been many uh, supportive policy statements in the last couple of years from medical societies sort of recommending that we use the word potentially inappropriate treatment as opposed to futile because futile is very subjective. What one person considers to be futile may be very different than another person. Um, But the, Courts have ruled both for and against families in situations like this. And on the opposite side, courts have also intervened in cases where parents refused treatment that medical professionals felt was necessary and life-saving. And so... And, and I, we've, I mean, that, that certainly has happened here with, you know, as recently as a few years ago with cancer treatments where the family has objected to the cancer treatment and it was a treatment that was almost 100% successful and the courts intervened. That's correct. Correct. And so I think people need to keep in mind that th- when you hear snippets of information about this and, you know, of course, I've been paying attention to what's on social media about this and what's in the news about this and people's reaction is, you know, how could a court let this baby die when the parents don't want them to, people have to recognize that they would probably unlikely be begrudging the courts if they intervened and said that a child with a 95% chance of survival to receive chemotherapy is mandated to do so. So, um, you know, the courts have weighed in on, on both sides of this, of this issue. Right. And, and, you know, it, it, it's interesting to me because, I mean, I'm old enough to remember the Karen Ann Quinlan case, uh, which sure. was a very famous case that, that – and she passed away in, in the mid-1980s. But there was a lengthy legal battle about, you know, the right to remove, you know, treatment. Should there be treatment? Should there not be? Is it different when it's a child, at least in the U.S.? 
In principle, it is not different, but the players are different. Okay. So, so if somebody's like know, 17 in, or under, I suppose that would be considered a child. Correct. 18 and under. So, you know, in, in bioethics, we sort of look at four main points to, uh, to evaluate when we determine whether or not a treatment is going to be beneficial for a patient or whether or not to allow a patient to make their own decisions. And the first one is autonomy. And this is where adults and p- children differ is that adults are presumed to have autonomous decision-making capacity, meaning that any adult at any point can refuse a life-saving treatment or not, and they should be allowed to make that decision. Okay. Obviously, children, and let's speak specifically about Charlie, he's 11 months old, he clearly has not been capable of formulating any opinion about whether or not he would like this treatment. Right. So we then... Uh, use the parents as surrogate decision makers, and we apply what is called the best interest standard to their decision making. And we rely on parents to determine what is in the best interest of their child. And the issue at hand with Charlie Gard is that Great Ormond Street Hospital and the British courts, and in fact, the European, uh, the European Court of Human Rights, all felt that Charlie's best interests were not to continue to suffer from this progressive and and fatal disease. And so we give parents the right to make decisions for children in their best interest until it is felt that perhaps the child's best interest really is not the driving factor or that the parents are just not in a place where they can recognize um, best interest issues and there's a difference of opinion with the medical team. You know, is there, when this situation happens, or when you've got a case like this in a hospital here, are, is there, are there support people that come in to help? To help the family? Yes. Well I, I mean, I guess, yeah. I guess you know, you've got yeah. the doctors and you've got the parents. I mean, are, I, I guess I'm just thinking that, that you know, I, I can't even imagine being in this kind of situation, but I'm just wondering if there are people there are there other people that come in that, that can help and, and, you know, provide some other viewpoints or, or just help the families? Yes, and there is a, a process that that hospitals have to go through. Um, there are various policies at our institution. Um, if the medical team feels that a patient's care is futile, meaning that they would not survive to discharge from the hospital or that the the requested treatment cannot possibly achieve the goals of that treatment. Um, the case, and I do need to interject as a, as a healthcare provider to say that when these decisions come to a stalemate, it is after probably 20 to 30 care conferences and family meetings and attempts at communication and ensuring the understanding of the family about the clinical condition. So it doesn't sort of happen in a vacuum. Um, And there are just truly differences of opinion about what the patient's likelihood of a reasonable outcome is. 
Um, so if there is no agreement and the hospital feels that continuing treatment is futile, then it goes to the ethics committee. And if the ethics committee agrees with the medical professionals, then the family is told that um, the team will help them seek other treatment elsewhere. Uh, and if they cannot find that treatment elsewhere, then the hospital may remove life-sustaining treatment. And, and, um, yeah. and it's possible this child may be coming to the U.S. Um, right. So there was a, a, a ch- new chapter yesterday, uh, and I think probably secondary to President Trump and the Pope getting involved uh, because Great Ormond Street, I think, was feeling the, the, the pressure from the community, from, from society at large, about uh, the the decision that had been made by them and the courts, and some information from neurologists, I believe the, uh, it's Columbia Presbyterian in New York, and then the Vatican Hospital uh, offered to uh, use this nucleoside therapy, which is experimental and has never been used in a child in Charlie's condition before. So the the belief of the the European uh, High Court was that this treatment offered no prospect of success, and that was after a thorough review of the scientific literature and consultation with specialists. So okay. there seems to be uh, some last ditch efforts by. Uh, Parents that have had children with other mitochondrial disorders, not the same as Charlie, uh, who have tried this therapy and to for him to have the opportunity right. to try it. Yeah, you know, l- let me let me ask you this, Doctor, because um, what it's it's being described it, it, in different ways, but it's one description I've seen is mitochondrial depletion syndrome. C- can you walk us through what what that might be? <laughs> I am not a neurologist, but I'll do my best basic uh, explanation. Essentially, if you think of the mitochondria, you have a mitochondria in every cell of your body. And what, what and is mitochondria? Mito- we got to get. It's it's a it is a protein within a protein. the cells of your body. Okay. And it, but it has a hugely important role. It is what we call kind of the powerhouse or the battery pack of every cell. Got it. So. Almost all of your energy needs for cell growth, for development, uh, come from functional mitochondria. This baby has a rare disease I had never heard of before I heard of his case, uh, where essentially his, his mitochondria are just completely non-functional. And so that explains why he's unable to breathe independently and requires the assistance of a ventilator. Uh, from what I've read, and it just as a disclaimer, everything I know about this case is from the media. I have no uh, personal knowledge of, of this case outside of that, but that he uh, has continued seizures. Um, he's both blind and deaf. Um, and so essentially his body is, is, is shutting down and over a relatively short period of time. Wow. Okay. Um, listen, uh, Doctor, this is a, a fascinating conversation. Dr. Jennifer Needle, she's an assistant professor of the Center for Bioethics and the Department of Pediatrics in the University of Minnesota Medical School. Uh, let's take a very quick break. When we come back, we want to ask her a few more questions about, you know, what parents should know, what people should know uh, if they ever find themselves in, 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 a, in a terrible situation 
like this, and it does sound, as Dr. Needle said, and I'm going to ask her about this, that this is relatively rare, that most of the time there is some kind of agreement about what to do. So keep it here. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. Esme Murphy back with you on News Radio 830 WCCO, uh, chatting with Dr. Jennifer Needle. She's an assistant professor, Center for Bioethics in the Department of Pediatrics in the U of M Medical School, about the case of Charlie Gard, uh, a little baby, 11 months old, that has a rare genetic disorder. He cannot breathe on his own. The doctors have said, the hospitals have said, the courts have said that it is best that the life support be removed. The parents have fought it. Uh, the Pope has weighed in. The president has weighed in, President Donald Trump. There are members of Congress who want the child to come here and make – they're talking about making the family uh, American citizens or, or residents of the United States so they can qualify for treatment. I mean this, this thing has become extremely politicized. Uh, Dr. Needle, I, 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 you said something very interesting at the beginning of the interview that, that this kind of um, division and, and disagreement is pretty rare here. Uh, in most cases, when it comes to this, you know, horrible point, are are people on the same page? I think after time, there is an establishment of a relationship and an establishment of trust with the medical team and a recognition that the medical team's goal is likely the medical team is as much as the family hoping that they could cure the disease or right. bring the patient back to their condition. But there are limits to medicine, and there are diseases we can't treat. And very sadly, some children die of those diseases. And so it does require frequent, effective communication from the medical team with the family. I think one of the most important things that we should do and probably don't do as much as we do, and I say we as a, as a physician, is really talk to families over the course of a child's hospitalization about what the family's goals are. And, of course, the number one goal for any parent is that their child be cured of the disease or their child be healthy. But the, the next question that doctors have to ask that family is, if cure is not possible, then what other goals do you have so that we could maybe help you meet those? So if it's spending more time with the child, or we would like the child to be able to go home before they die, or we want to make sure that everyone that's in our extended family gets to visit them before they die. That helps establish a relationship with the medical team where the medical team can really do everything to accommodate the goals of the family in the absence of being able to cure the child of the disease. And so I think ultimately we are often able to reach an understanding with families that as much as we'd like to and as much as we tried, the the child is unfortunately going to die. And now we need to establish what our new set of goals are. Right. And that's so interesting. I mean, I, I know somebody who had, um, you know, was diagnosed during their, their pregnancy with um, a genetic, uh, yeah, but that normally ends with, with, you know, a stillbirth or a terminated pregnancy, but the child Occasionally, the children do live, and this child did live um, for four-plus years, and it, it wasn't easy. I don't know how they did it, but, but you know, she went to school, and it was, um, you know, it, 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 they were happy and, and had their life there. It was, uh, you know, the, the child was, did have 
serious disabilities, but I know that they were actually counseled on whether or not to terminate the pregnancy, and they were told that, in fact, that in many likelihoods that the, the, the pregnancy might, in fact, self-terminate. Um, is, is this becoming sort of more of an issue with the advances in medicine, which allow sort of, you know, some remarkable measures to provide, if not perhaps not in this case, but in other cases, you know, a, a quality life there for at least some time? Absolutely. I mean, the capacity of medicine to treat diseases that would have been fatal even five years ago is is pretty remarkable. And I think that's a double-edged sword. So I think that there's no question that thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people are benefiting from scientific advancements in medicine every single day. My concern is, is that when it comes to cases in which scientific advances haven't gotten to the point where we have a cure or we have a treatment, that's a very difficult pill to swallow for families that are really reaching for anything, any experimental treatment, any possibility of cure. And so oftentimes there is this belief that medicine can fix everything, that everything's curable. uh, and, And that also requires a, a thorough conversation about the limits of medicine, uh, despite all the amazing technology that we have. All right. Well, Dr. Needle, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. We certainly pre- appreciate your insights uh, on the story that it continues to develop. Thank you very much. All right, folks, keep it here. You are listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 